Hi, if you've listened to some of my other talks, you'll be aware that for a large part of this island's history, there was no entity called England, or, or Wales or Scotland for that matter. Uh, after the departure of the Roman legions in 410 AD, Germanic mercenaries were invited into Britain and they came to blows with their, their Romano-British employers. Cue the King Arthur legends. Now, these you know, small groups of Angles and Saxons and Jutes who arrived as sort of mercenaries and warriors and farmers, they originally formed sort of small independent communities. But over the years, uh, these tribes, these groups started to merge into uh, Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, which sort of consolidated into basically seven key kingdoms, which, which later historians called the Heptarchy. Now, in the south, it was dominated by the Jutish kingdom of Kent and also the kingdoms of the, the Wessex, based in Hampshire, Dorset, Wiltshire, Wessex, and the South Sax, Sussex, around, well, in Sussex now. In the northeast, uh, the kingdoms of Deira, modern-day Yorkshire, and Bernicia, which was sort of Tyneside, right up to and beyond the, the modern Scottish English-Scottish border formed into Northumbria. And we don't know how or when, but in the very far east, the Kingdom of East Anglia had been born out of the, the North Folk and the South Folk, modern-day Norfolk and Suffolk. Likewise, the, the Middle Saxons or Middlesex had settled along the north bank of the Thames. And at uh, one time they'd been called the Middlesex, they were now part of the Kingdom of the East Saxons, Essex. Uh, and there was ever this ever westward advance of the Anglo-Saxons into British lands. Angles from Mercia, the Midland area of, of what is now England, they wrested control of uh, modern-day sort of Worcestershire, Gloucestershire in the Severn Valley and formed the kingdom of the Hawissa. And to the north, uh, to the western north of the Hawissa, another group of Anglian settlers uh, uh, formed a kingdom called the Magonseta which was in sort of modern-day Herefordshire and Shropshire. You know, and these, along with a, another Anglian kingdom of Middle Angles, over around the sort of Kettering Stamford area, around the A1, uh, these were lesser kingdoms coming more and more, under, uh, Anglian kingdoms coming more and more under the influence of their big brother, Mercia, which was centred around Tamworth in the Trent Valley. Meanwhile, we also had the Kingdom of Lindsay in what is now North Lincolnshire, and that was like a buffer state between the growing power of Mercia and Northumbria. And both of these kingdoms were trying to influence and control that region. And from time to time, one of these, these rulers of the, these ever-consolidating kingdoms would become dominant over some or many of their neighbours. The Venerable Bede, in his Ecclesiastical History of the English People, which he wrote in the, in the 700s, called these overlords Bretwalders. Uh, and he named seven Bretwalders in Anglo-Saxon history, the first of which was the founding king of the South Saxons. But the South Saxon dominance, the Sussex dominance, was short-lived, and by the late 6th century, the new power in the land was the Kingdom of Kent, under their king, King Athelbert. His influence stretched over, obviously, Kent, but into uh, over the Thames, into Essex, and along the south coast into Sussex, and to a certain extent into the West Saxons as well. And this king not only traded with the old Roman Empire across the, across the English Channel, in what was now called Francia, France, but he started to take on some of the ancient trappings of, of that Roman power as well. 
You might recall that early Anglo-Saxons had shunned the Roman cities of Britain. You know, as simple farmers, they had no need for that style of commerce or for those sort of centres of administration, nor, of course, those places of Christian worship, because they weren't Christians, they were pagans. So the Romano-British also deserted those cities too, partly because of the ethnic conflict with the newcomers, but partly because the, the economy was in freefall. And as it fell apart, they were reduced to becoming to an agricultural existence like the Saxons and Angles were as well. And so quickly, the, the old Romano-British cities, the Roman cities, became ruined ghost towns. In fact, many of the, the Germanic settlers thought that these strange places built of brick had actually been built by giants. That, that was their legends. But now Ethelbert of Kent moved back into the Roman city of Duravernum, which was given a new name, Cantwara Burr, the stronghold of the Kentish people, or as we would now know it, Canterbury. And so it was on the shores of his kingdom, Kent, that a stranger arrived in 597. Augustine was a monk from Rome and he was on a mission from Pope Gregory the Great to restore Christianity to the lost province of Britannia. As we shall see, actually Christianity had never actually left Britannia. Um, the Romano-Britons had kept the old faith alive, but we'll come to that later in the story. But the Anglo-Saxons, they worshipped Wodin and a plethora of gods with a lot of similarities to the Viking gods later on in, 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 in European history. And it seemed, quite frankly, that their gods were winning and the Christian god wasn't. So Augustine had a tough nut to crack, but he did have a bit of an easy in in Kent. King Athelbert's wife, a Frankish princess, was already a Christian. And so using this, this powerful leader, Augustine was able to convert the king and his subjects and he established his first archbishopric in Athelbert's capital, Canterbury. And that is why to this day, the senior archbishop or the senior bishops uh, in, 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 in the Church of England is based at Canterbury, not London. Whilst Athelbert might have been the Brett Warder in the south of Britain, his influence did not extend to the north. Up there, there was a new king flexing his muscles. Aethelfrith, king of Bernicia, you know, the kingdom that ran from Tyneside up to the eastern parts of modern Scotland. Well, he had annexed the neighbouring kingdom of Deira, Yorkshire, creating this new powerhouse called Northumbria. He turned on his northern neighbour, the Brythonic kingdom of Godothin in modern-day Lothian, uh, sort of Edinburgh area of Scotland, and destroyed their army before delivering an equally crushing row blow to their western neighbours, the, the Irish Scotty kingdom of Dalriada uh, Del uh, at the Battle of Degestan in 6 603 AD. Records as to how Deira and Bernicia actually were united by Aethelfrith are unclear. Maybe it was conquest, and let's be honest, he seemed to be pretty good at that. But maybe it was also through marriage. But what we do know is that a member of the old Deiran, the Yorkshire royal family, by the name of Edwin, went on the run. Uh, first he fled to Mercia, then he fled to the British kingdom of Gwyneth in northern Wales. And finally he ended up in East Anglia. And what we also know is that the new king of Northumbria wanted to eliminate him. In fact, he offered a huge bribe to the East Anglian king, Raedwald, to hand over his refugee. 
And Raywell was was tempted until his wife intervened and basically said, you can't be bossed around by some, some king up there in the north. So with that uh, bribe lost, the, uh, the Northumbrian leader now turned nasty and threatened to basically march on East Anglia if they didn't comply and hand over the renegade prince. And Raywald had had enough. He assembled his army of East Anglia and marched with his son and Prince Edwin of Deira. They marched north out of the, through the Fenlands and up towards Northumbria. In 616, on the banks of the River Idle, which is near modern-day Doncaster, uh, in South Yorkshire, North Nottinghamshire area, the, the East Anglian army met the battle-hardened host of Northumbria. Raidwald led his men forward, and as he did so, Aethelfrith of Northumbria, he saw the young prince, his rival, and he led a charge with his best warriors in a counter-attack, smashed through the East Anglian lines, and they hacked down the young prince. Raidwald looked on horrified as he saw his son butchered. The Northumbrians had got the wrong prince. And then his horror turned to fury. The Battle of the River Idol was the first record of Anglo-Saxons fighting each other rather than picking on the Brits in the West. By the end of that day, the mighty, power-hungry Aethelfrith of Northumbria and his warriors lay dead. And a new Bretwalder had emerged. Raidwald of East Anglia. It is Raidwald who is believed to have been buried in the treasure ship uh, that was unearthed at Sutton Hoo in 1939. You may have seen the film uh, based on the discovery on Netflix called The Dig. And it's his helmet and his, uh, all his treasures that are on display in the British Museum. The victory at the River Idol saw Edwin restored to the throne of Northumbria. And it was also in this same year, 616, that Aethelbert of Kent, the only Christian king in Anglo-Saxon Britain, died. And he was succeeded by his pagan son. All of Augustine's work was unravelling after just 20 years. But not quite all of it. Edwin of Northumbria had decided to marry Aethelbert of Kent's daughter, Aethelberg. Gets very confusing with the Aethels. Just keep with me on this one. Keep with me. Unlike her pagan brother, she was still a Christian. Could Princess or Queen Aethelberg save the Roman Catholic mission in Britain? Well, she travelled north with a letter and gifts from the Pope. And in 627, Edwin converted to Christianity. The church had a new base in Britain, and rapidly the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms started to convert to Christianity. Now, this newfound love of Jesus by Edwin didn't translate into a love for his neighbours. He conquered his southern Anglian neighbour, the Kingdom of Lindsay in North Lincolnshire. He snuffed out the independence of that minor British kingdom of Elmet in the Peak District of, of what's now England. He even occupied, managed to occupy the Isle of Man uh, in the Irish Sea and also the Isle of Anglesey off the northwest coast of Wales, which was somewhat ironic because Anglesey was actually part of the, the Kingdom of Gwyneth, whose king had given him sanctuary when he was on the run a few years beforehand. And now the new British King of Gwyneth, a man called Cadwathlan, was not happy. Christian Cadwathlan of Gwyneth teamed up with the last pagan Anglo-Saxon king, Pender of Mercia. So, in 632, this British-Anglian Christian pagan army 
met Edwin at a place called Hatfield Chase uh, in sort of South Yorkshire, and Edwin was defeated and killed. For the first time in over 100 years, the British had achieved a notable victory over the newcomers, and it was payback time. Cadwathlan took his revenge on the people and properties of Northumbria, raising it to the ground. But after two years of this devastation, a son of the King Aethelfrith, remember he, he who died at the River Idol? He led a re rebel army from modern-day Scotland, and in the shadow of Hadrian's Wall, they defeated the mighty British King Cadwathlan, killing him at a place where the locals would later call Heaven's Field. And that rebel was called Oswald. Northumbrian independence was restored, and indeed the, the victory by Cadwathlan was the last time that a British-Welsh army would ever defeat an Anglo-Saxon or English army in battle. Christian Oswald didn't just restore Northumbrian independence, but he turned Northumbria into the superpower on the island. He marched north and this time dealt a crushing blow to the Brythonic kingdom of Godothin, capturing their stronghold of Edinburgh. He also finally crossed swords with the pagan Penda in Mercia and invaded the Midland Kingdom. In fact, he went so far west that eventually they, uh, they, he met Penda's army right across the other side of Mercia uh, near modern-day Oswestry. But once again, it was Penda the pagan who stood victorious at the end of that battle, leaving Oswald to become a saint, martyred fighting for Jesus against the pagans. Saint Oswald. Penda is a forgotten is a name forgotten to history not least because of course the early anglo-saxon history was written by the venerable Bede, a christian monk uh, writing in his monastery and basically he wasn't going to give any credit to the pagan king as and call him a bretwalder but to all intents and purposes that's exactly what pender became he was the warrior of his age during his his reign as king of mercia he defeated and killed two kings of northumbria three kings of East Anglia, and he overthrew the King of Wessex. He also led two devastating invasions into Northumbria. And when the Northern Kingdom once more challenged him in 655, he led a huge army gathered from most of the southern and incidentally Christian kingdoms northwards once more. His kingdom, actually, his, sorry, his army actually included the, la the latest King of East Anglia, who obviously thought it was better to side with Pender than against him. And it wreaked havoc all the way up uh, to modern Edinburgh, before the Northumbrian king, who was Oswald's brother, offered him a huge tribute in gold and silver to go home. So he took the tribute, and on his way to home, travelling near modern-day Leeds, the Northumbrians ambushed Pender's army, and in the ensuing battle, the last great pagan king of Anglo-Saxon England was killed. Northumbria was once again on the up, under King Oswy, Oswald's brother. When St. Augustine had landed in Kent nearly 60 years beforehand, his mission was to bring Christianity to Britain. The problem is, as I said earlier, that actually Christianity had never actually left Britain. You know, the legions might have departed Britain in 410, but they left behind the religion of the empire, Christianity. And that, like the Romano-British, had just retreated westwards. You may, you may recall it was a young Briton by the name of Patrick who had converted the Irish. Christianity had taken root in Ireland and eventually, somewhat bizarrely, it had crossed back to Scotland. Uh, the Irish tribe, the Scotty, had settled in the area around sort of modern-day Glasgow, near as damn it, and formed a Gaelic non-Brythonic kingdom called Dalriada. Talked about them earlier. They retained close, close links with their Irish cousins 
And of course, naturally, they welcomed a Christian missionary called Columba, and they allowed him to establish a monastery on the island of Iona, off the west coast of Scotland. The problem was that Rome had moved forward in the, the last 200 years, and the British, uh, the British church, centred in Ireland, thanks to Patrick, had travelled its own journey. King Oswy and his brother Oswald before him had found refuge in Adalriada during the reign of Edwin. And there in Dalriada, both of them had converted to Christianity. So when Oswald re was restored to the throne of Northumbria, so was Christianity, but it was their brand of Christianity, the Irish monastic Christianity of Iona, that they reintroduced to the kingdom, rather than Augustine's Roman brand. In fact, Oswy invited a monk from Iona to set up a monastery on the island of Lindisfarne, uh, a man called Aidan, Saint Aidan. And once again, the Roman mission in Britain was in danger of being eclipsed, this time not by pagans, but by a rival Christian church. So what were they actually squabbling about, apart from the fact they sort of travelled two different journeys? Well, you'll love this. The two things they really, the two main areas of contention were how monks cut their hair, I kid you not, and the date of Easter. And I won't go into all the semantics about the dates of Easter, but standing here in the 21st century, you know, we might think those differences are minor, but when you had a highly religious society, they were main things. And even King Oswy was caught up in this personally, especially around the date of Easter. Like his brother Oswald, he was a follower of the Irish Celtic tradition from Iona. And his wife was from the Kentish royal family, so she followed Rome. And Easter ended up being celebrated twice in the Northumbrian court. And so it was in 664, 664 that King Oswy called a synod between the two factions at Whitby. It pitted Bishop Coleman of Lindisfarne against a man called Bishop Agelbert, a Frankish bishop who had been uh, practising in Wessex, and he supported Rome. Coleman was on home ground, yet in Northumbria, speaking Anglo-Saxon language, unlike Rome's advocate, who actually only could speak uh, Frankish. However, Bishop Agelbert had an ace up his sleeve. A highly ambitious Northumbrian bishop called Wilfred. Able to speak in the local tongue, Wilfred tore into the, the Celtic arguments and convinced Oswy to support Rome. And there at the, the, the Synod of Whitby in 664, King Oswy uh, fixed the date of Easter to be in line with the Roman church, not the, the, the Celtic church. And he also ordered the monks to cut their hair in the Roman manner, which is basically the Friar Tuck look that we all think of monks having uh, nowadays. And Anglo-Saxon England fell into line with the Roman tradition, which lasted until Henry VIII broke with the Roman Catholic Church 900 years later. Oswy of Northumbria was succeeded by his son, who in 685 did what Northumbrians do best. He picked a fight with his northern neighbours, the Picts in the far north of the island. And with a huge army, he advanced into their territory. The Picts fell back, drawing him further and further into the, the Highlands, what we now call the Scottish Highlands. And there at a place called Nectonsmere, Nectonsmere, they sprung their trap. For the first time, a Northumbrian army was smashed by their northern neighbours. In the, in the battle, the Northumbrian king himself was killed, and with it, the might of Northumbria. Never again would Northumbria be the dominant military kingdom on the island. Instead, in fact, for the next 100 years, somewhat ironically, Northumbria became, with its monasteries, especially at Lindisfarne and Jarrow, became a centre of learning 
Amazing turnaround from the warlike northeast, uh, north of England, this centre of learning. And meanwhile, military and political power shifted south into the Midlands and the Kingdom of Mercia. Under their king, Athelbald, who ruled for the next 40 years, Mercia rose from this poor, inland, isolated kingdom into the powerhouse of Britain. The springboard to Mercia's rise was, the ga was gaining control of London from, well, Kent and Wessex. They'd always been vying to control it, and then suddenly Mercia came in and knocked them both out the way. Now, it's just worth mentioning that, you know, the old Roman trading port of London, Londinium, had long been abandoned, like most other British cities. The newcomers had avoided its derelict ghostly remains. But they had established a trading port on a much smaller scale and just with wooden buildings just up the river to the west. Uh, trading places were, obviously, were often defined in, uh, by the Anglo-Saxons with the name witch. They were called a witch uh, marketplace, basically. And so it was that London Witch was born. London Witch stretched from the current sort of Trafalgar Square along the Strand, which was a wharf. The water came right up to the Strand in those days, uh, to the Old Witch, or as we'd now know it on the London maps, Old Witch. By the late 600s, it was a boom town. Import, export. It's what London, quite frankly, still is to this day. It was what London was in the Roman times. And gaining control of London Witch gave Mercia three big advantages. First, for the first time, this inland kingdom had a port for imports and exports. Secondly, King Athelbert of Mercia was able to charge tolls on the trade, which actually was a lot easier than sending tax collectors roaming all around the Midlands of England. And thirdly, he gained control of the London Mint, one of only three mints producing coins in, in England at the time. Suddenly, Mercia had the economic strength to go alongside her military muscle in a way that his, his ancestor, Penda, could only ever have dreamed of. By the mid-730s, so just over 300 years after the Anglo-Saxon mercenaries had landed in England, Athelbold was styling himself ruler of the South Angles. And by that, he didn't just mean the Angles of Mercia and East Anglia. He actually meant the South of Britain. So those in the South was seeing themselves as a distinct and similar group of people, the Angli or the English. Meanwhile, those who lived in the West or were British born were referred to by the, the Angli as Wielas or foreigners. It's just to note that this term, the Wielas, was not used to denote inhabitants of Wales, okay? It was actually used to denote anyone in the West who wasn't an Anglo-Saxon. Uh, so the Southwest and also the Northwest, for instance, the kingdoms of like Reged in modern-day Cumbria. The locals, they, those, those Brythonic people, sure as heck they didn't use that Germanic, Germanic term to describe themselves, the Wielas, and they sure as heck weren't calling themselves the foreigners. This was their land. The, 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 uh, <laughs> it, was the, it was the invaders who were the foreigners. So they called themselves something different. They called themselves the compatriots, or Cymru. And again, whilst Cymru is the Celtic name for Wales, it also gives, it's also the base for the Brythonic area of northwest England, Cumbria. So despite what you might believe from television series uh, The Last Kingdom, the south and east of Britain saw themselves as one people, Middle East separated into different kingdoms, 
well over 100 years before Alfred the Great came along with his idea of an England. In 757, Athelbald was killed by his bodyguards and a brief civil war erupted in Mercia. Emerging quickly from the chaos was a far-off relative of his and a, another descendant of Penda, a man by the name of Offa. Offa is probably best known for the massive earthen rampart that he built along his border between Mercia and the British kingdoms to his west, Offa's Dyke. It's still there to this day. The purpose of Offa's Dyke is not entirely clear. Maybe it was to prevent the Welsh raiding his lands. He certainly fought the Welsh on four different occasions during his reign. Maybe it was to force all trade through just certain toll points. Good money earner. And Offa was all for increasing his economic wealth and power. And in fact, as part of that, he had actually annexed the Kingdom of Kent in 785, taking control of its mint in Canterbury. Now Offa had the three mints of Britain, Canterbury, London, Ipswich. Or maybe it was just a political statement. Offa's Dyke was a political statement. At 64 miles in length, it rivals Hadrian's Wall. Maybe Offa was saying that he wasn't just the King of Mercia, but he was the inheritor of the Roman Imperium in Britain, a rival to the most powerful ruler then in Western Europe, Charlemagne. In fact, there is evidence that Offa and Charlemagne consider themselves pretty much as equals. Charlemagne offered the hand of, of marriage of one of his daughters to Offa's son and heir. But relations were also strained, not least because Charlemagne seemed to offer constant sanctuary to many of, of Offa's enemies, especially those from Wessex and Kent. You know, it said the two southern kingdoms where Offa had intervened militarily. He propped up a usurper in, in Wessex and had taken outright control of Kent in, in 785. He'd also annexed Sussex for good measure. So the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, even that heptarchy, were starting to consolidate even more. Offa's sense of imperium saw him styling himself as Rex Anglorum, or King of the English, by the 770s. And he started issuing gold coins, bearing his head very much in the design reminiscent of, of, the, of the Roman emperors. Possibly one of the most interesting and amusing stories is uh, of the gold coin designed for Offa, copied from the dinars issued by the Islamic Caliphate in the Middle East, which also shows just the, the trading routes that, that Offa was presiding over. Uh, it was thought that the gold coin actually was shot as part of a promise, a payment, that Offa was going to make of 365 gold coins every year to the Pope. Uh, and there were some political reasons for that, which we won't go into now. Unfortunately, whoever struck the coin copied the dinar so accurately and had so little knowledge of Arabic that around in the middle you have Offa's name and around it you have this Arabic inscription, which says, there is no God but Allah alone. And I think it's, it's fun to think that maybe Offa might have sent this coin to the Pope as a, as a, as a gift. Offa died at his royal capital in Tamworth on the 29th of July, 796. Of all the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, only Northumbria stood outside his sphere of influence. The Britons of Wales had been defeated, their lands had been raided, and a huge dike, visible to this day, separated them from his realm. He was on equal terms with the Holy Roman Emperor, Charlemagne. Never before had any Anglo-Saxon king achieved this level of power. In his final years, Offa knew that Mercia was now poised to unite the Angli, the English, into one kingdom. But there was trouble on the horizon. Just three years before he died, up in Northumbria, 
An event had occurred that would bring all of Offa's ambitions and plans to naught. It would delay the Kingdom of England for over a hundred years. Indeed, it would bring the English to their very knees. One morning in 793 AD, the monks on that faraway monastery in Lindisfarne watched a fleet of ships appear on the horizon. The English were about to meet the Vikings. Join me next time as the Vikings descend upon England and indeed the rest of Britain and Alfred the Great struggles to preserve Wessex as the Anglo-Saxons' last kingdom.